Hi, my name is Andrea Page. Welcome to my podcast, Hanging On For Hope. This podcast is a podcast that will feature myself as well as many other families and friends of people in crisis. We will have a strong focus on kids in crisis or adults who were kids in crisis who were not able to access the help that they needed. Uh, I myself am one of those moms, one of those parents. I have a son who has just started a six-year sentence in a federal penitentiary, um, and that is not where that story starts. Unfortunately, we all too often look at conclusions and outcomes, and we have very little context on how someone arrived where they are. There is a lot of aspects to my story that I will touch on today and that will come out in other episodes when I interact with parents, um, family members, sisters, friends, loved ones who are advocating for change within a very, very broken system. Some of the people we will meet have lost children. Um, I unfortunately have become a part of a group of parents and loved ones who have kids in crisis uh, really at the end of the road and many of them have lost their children in an unfortunate uh, variety of ways. I am inspired to start this podcast because in, in speaking and advocating for the missed opportunities that so many of us had to help our children overcome the things that they were facing, um, there is a lot of ignorance and lack of education out there. Um, And I think it's really, really important that we humanize those who are facing these struggles, those who are still here, those we have lost, um, so that we can really, really understand that this truly can happen to anyone. Just recently, uh, I went to a rally for um, a young man who was lost in custody in the region that I live in Canada. Um, and he had overdosed and uh, he did not receive adequate or timely medical treatment. Some of the things that we're advocating for is uh, making sure that the systems in place are are helping people, one, not be exposed to more drugs while incarcerated, but as well, making sure that they can have access to immediate health care. Some of the objections we hear in society are, well, don't do drugs, don't be in jail. Seems obvious, but pretty emotionally lazy. I'd like to quickly circle back to my story. Um, my son, who is still alive, has just started a six-year sentence in federal penitentiary. Um, it's an unfortunate outcome, but one that I was able to predict uh, as early as 12, 13. I remember around 10 years old, I had called a very well-known Toronto-based youth treatment center, begging for treatment. And if this, this, of course, was not the first time. I had already had many hospital trips. I had already worked with parenting coaches. I had already worked with um, a variety of other uh, professionals to try to help our family. I was stressed beyond measure. Uh, It was affecting my own mental health, which I already struggled with. And, um, you know, our family was in crisis. There is no way around it, no way to 
to blame any one single person. Um, as a, a close friend of mine said, there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, but I want to be a problem solver. Um, and I want to help other families like myself solve problems so that we can improve outcomes uh, for young people who are struggling and are in crisis. And I think one of the things that really comes up quite a lot is why. Why is this person in crisis? Now, I think it's really important for us to identify the whys so that we can figure out what types of treatment might be best for them. But well before we get to that point, people need to have access to treatment. They need to have access to treatment in a timely manner. We also know that early intervention matters and how we are responding when children are 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 matters so much. I will say that at 17 years old, when my son was first convicted of a crime, although charged many times prior, uh, we finally got a court-ordered assessment. One of the things that came out of his court-ordered assessment is that he processes in the bottom 5%, which means that he has issues with self-regulation, impulse control, um, etc., etc. A child that has impulse control, self-regulation issues, or has a processing or a sensory delay with the right treatment can learn how to function in society in a healthy way. My son never received that treatment. Not once. Not ever. And I will say that one of the things that I have continued to advocate for is to stop criminalizing the behavior of children under 12, especially. But I will also say that I continue to advocate for children who are incarcerated at 12, 13, 14 years old, that they must receive treatment, that it's not an option. I'm not sure that a lot of people realize that in Canada, the age of consent for mental health treatment is 12. That's right. At 12 years old, a child, in crisis or not, can refuse mental health help. And very rarely will you see it court-ordered. One of the arguments is is that people have to buy in. And I call bullshit. I call complete bullshit. You please find me a 15-year-old or a 12-year-old who really willingly wants to load the dishwasher. No, they don't. That's not what kids want to do. There's a lot of things that kids have to do that they don't want to do that we know is for their well-being. And there is no way that we should be in a country where children are being permitted, even though they have demonstrated that they cannot self-regulate or make decisions that are good for them or those around them, that they should be permitted to refuse treatment, period. So in terms of talking about accessing help for your child or when children can refuse help, I I recently met a mom who has a very similar story to me and she's joined today to help me kind of tell a story that is very similar to mine. Uh, Her name is Jen Scaduto. Thank you for coming. Hi, thank you. Um, So today we actually just celebrated our son's birthdays. Uh, Her son's birthday was on Wednesday and he's 19 and my son's birthday is... Was, is today and he is 20 and neither one of us have got to spend a birthday with our son in many many years um, so which brings me to when did you first seek help for your son when did you first try to reach out for professional help or experts to get involved with the challenges you were facing so I first started when he was around the age of seven um, there was behavioral issues 
at home as well as at school. Um, so we got him involved with Pastone's Mental Health, where he went for counseling once a week. Right. And that's where it started. Wow, I can super relate to that. My first hospital visit with my son was at seven years old. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's this massive misconception out there uh, in the general public when you see kids' lives that are ending in crisis that parents haven't fought hard enough or or tried. And, you know, how has fighting for your son over the years impacted your life? Like, your ability to work, take care of yourself? Like, do you, it's like, I for me, it's felt like a full-time job. Absolutely, absolutely. And ironically... My son is addicted to drugs, and with that, I have become addicted to saving my son. Yes, I hear about this often. There's actually a woman who wrote a book in the community um, that I'm going to reference later in this episode, or I'll post, but it is actually about the self-care piece, right? Like, it is, it can become an obsession, Yeah. right? And I think that a lot of that is rooted in the shame and guilt we feel. Right? Yeah. Because, let's face it, I, you know, I I never say that, oh, I was this perfect parent who provided my child the perfect environment and things. No. I've got a history of trauma myself. I've struggled with my own mental health. Um, and I definitely recognize that, th- that I share a piece in my son's story. But um, it, it's interesting to me, though, that 90% of the people who continue to fight are, are mothers. Right. Um, um, so you told me that he, the first time he went was at seven to pass stone. So he was having behavioral issues. So tell me a little bit more about how your story progressed and, you know, where you realized, tell me about the time when you realized that you were really losing control. He was 12 when I knew that I was really losing control. He had run away from home with his then girlfriend who was a year younger. Um, and that, that was the beginning of this huge situation where I had no control. He was 12 years old and he had all his rights. That's when they gained their rights is at the age of 12. Oh, yes. So I feel when he gained his rights, I lost my rights as a, to be a mother to him, to guide him down the right path that he should have been taking. Wow, that's so. That's actually um, one of my kind of life missions is to change the mental health age of consent, which is uh, under the Canadian Mental Health Act is twelve years old in yeah. Canada. Yeah. And I think a lot of parents. I don't know. Do you find that when you speak to other people and you tell them this, that people are surprised? Oh yeah, they're absolutely shocked. Yeah, I yeah. find that some people just actually don't believe me. Yeah, they're like, no, that could not possibly oh, be yeah. true. And I'm like, oh no, it's absolutely true. Yeah. So, so, so tell me more about that incident and the kind of the things that followed in the years to come. Tell me a little bit more. Um, so we were seeing this girl from school. She was 11 and he was 12 and they started, they were sexually active. So my husband at the time, which is his father and I were trying to put a stop to the relationship and he would have no part of it. So they decided to run away one night together and it was 18 hours at that point, the longest time of my life, um, it just barreled downhill from there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... Fast and furious. Yeah, yeah. You said something earlier when we were speaking. Um, you had said from a very early age your son couldn't hear the word no. And I think uh, that really spoke to me because that was very similar. My son, uh, from a very early age, uh 
couldn't control his impulses or his urges. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, had a really hard time with any sort of boundaries or limits that were set for him. A hard time would probably be <laughs> quite the understatement, actually. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because one thing I recognize about uh, mothers of children our age, so they're in their teens, right? Mental health has really come a long way. A lot of people think it hasn't, but I do a lot of advocacy now for families w- where they have kids in crisis, and you can certainly access the help if you know the things to say and, and are, are, you know, skilled in advocacy. However, I think, you know, it's very clear to me that your son had some underlying issues. Absolutely. My son had some underlying issues and that an early intervention and an early mental health assessment and a diagnosis of perhaps not diagnosing oppositional defiance disorder or uh, something to that effect, uh, whatever kind of diagnosis or, uh, that, or conclusion we could come to because then that helps us to decide the pathway for treatment. I think the challenge is, is that people are waiting so long for help. Yes. Then you bump into the uh, Mental Health Act saying now it's the age of consent, which is 12. Now, by this time, a child who is now a young adult's behavior may have been criminalized, which adds a whole layer of complexity in terms of accessing help. Um, but the truth is, is that what I see now is when we see families who are able to access the help and the support and get the right treatment in place early, it's life-changing. Absolutely. It's, it's life-changing. So, you know, you, so now you say you've, you've lost control. When was the first time that your son was arrested? How old was he? Was it that? He was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, stole an iPod from a kid at school. Right. It was in his the first month of grade nine, I believe. Yeah, it was. It was September of grade nine. So, yeah. and, but his arrest is released to parent. Right. So again, he's not learning anything from this arrest. Well, this right. is a whole other, another piece, right? So yeah. we're ta- there's so many layers and in further episodes, and I might have you back again if we're going to touch on a, a, a specific topic. But uh, my experience with the youth criminal justice system is that um, it's not that it's a disaster because I would say that it, there's humane treatment. They're actually, you know, given a lot. It is... Uh, clean environments and there's more support available but they don't have to access it because of course they can refuse all the help they want Um, but I I, it felt to me a little bit like glorified day camp Um, it goes back to the point you know so they have the right to refuse mental health help but then they have all these other rights where they can you know sit around playing ps4 all day and as a parent I'm frustrated because I'm like I'm sorry my child needs help like but we're just you know, we're incarcerating him. So he's, he's not with the people that love and care about him. And, and that is destabilizing and awful. But at the same time, he's really not being held accountable. So there's nothing motivating him to get help. Right. Right. And I think from a, a parent's standpoint, this, this is pretty frustrating. It's very Um, frustrating. You know, because once you get to this point, once they become an adult, well, it's a whole new ball game. Right. So, uh, your son just turned 19. Um, so what have the last couple years been like for you? What have you guys been going through? Um, that's a hard question. It's, um, a, a, people like to call it a roller coaster. I call it more of a merry-go-round because it's just, 
a non-stop circle that we seem to be going in. He gets in trouble with the law, he does his time, he gets out and does just a repeat. It's it's non-stop. Um, I would say a couple years ago for me, it was worse because he was on the streets and he wouldn't be in contact with me. Oh yeah, that's terrible. So for me, that was really hard not knowing you know, where mm-hmm. he is, if he's alive, if he's okay. Um, he's been better this past year with staying in contact with me. He's actually, probably the last couple months, actually been staying at my house for the most part. And people tell me I'm enabling him by letting him stay with me. Right. But to me, I, I've done, I've done the tough love. I've not let him live with me. You know, I've, and he's still used anyways. Right. So there's that harm reduction piece, right? Because at the end of the day, when we're dealing with addictions, we recognize that there's always underlying issues, right? right? Yeah. So, and which brings me to my next point. So as a mom, without maybe disclosing, you know, his personal uh, life experiences, but, you know, where do you feel like the gap is? Like if you could wave your magic wand and go back in time and say, you know, if only this had happened, what would that, what would that, what would that magic bullet be for you? I think there's more than one gap. Well, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Um, what's the one that you are most passionate about? Um, but if you want to name more than one thing, go, yeah, please do. The one gap that would have possibly changed him, you mean? Like change the outcome, like put him on a different path. That's a really tough question. So I'm going to suggest, you know, one of the things, you know, if you've got a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old and a nine-year-old who is in crisis and we are, we are having families take a child to counseling once a week, but then we're seeing behavior further decline. I'm a big advocate for early intervention. Uh, and I think early intervention needs to be um, uh, accessible and immediate. I don't think people should be waiting. I also believe that the moment a youth is incarcerated, that they should immediately um, be... um, uh, Well, they should be immediately assessed, but they should also... uh, A a part of their release plan should be um, make an agreement to engage in mental health or addictions, if it's uh, warranted, treatment. Like, as a before the release not as a part of release right, right so because right. uh, it, it has been many times in his part of release where then he just chooses not to go and now he's got a breach so yeah while he's before he's released would be good yeah i sure. do think that the the big piece right i think I also think that in society, people don't really comprehend what it's like to have a child that is, and I don't, again, I'm not really about providing or, you know, assigning labels, but people who are acting out defiantly or which are, you know, addiction is a symptom of trauma. Um, I do believe that my son has PTSD and I've believed that for a very long time. Um, Dr. Gabor Mate talks all the time about 
addiction being a symptom of trauma and that if you want to treat addiction, you've got to treat the trauma. Um, I think there's a lot of complexities in that we don't teach young boys and men how to talk about their emotions. So then when they're hurting, they either bottle it up or and internalize it or they externalize it. Whereas young women and girls are given far more permission to right. speak about the things that are, are hurting him, hurting them deeply without the same amount of stigma. I mean, the amount of stigma that boys face when dealing with emotional and psychological issues is, is astronomical. And it doesn't, it, it really does not make uh, an incentive for boys to speak about the issues that they're going through. Uh, and I always say it is no surprise that jails are filled with boys, um, Predominantly, right? right? And it's not because they're born worse. It is because we do not socialize and teach young boys and men how to deal with the painful events that happen to them in life. Um, so speaking of difficult and painful times, tell me about a, a, a really difficult time that you had um, advocating for your son through these difficult times. Uh, I You had talked about a time where he had kind of like ran away because he wanted to use. So tell me more about that. Um, So he was 14 and he was his week at his dad's house. So he left his dad's house that week and didn't return. So we reported him as missing. And I would spend hours upon hours just driving the streets looking for him. I had uh, noticed some police officers down a side street, so I just turned down there just to see, and it happened to be my son that they were talking to. And he was living with a 29-year-old addict. So when I pulled up, they were looking at me like, who are you? I said, I'm his mom. I said, we reported him missing, and I'd like to bring him home with me. Well, my son didn't want to come home, and the police did not make him. It was his choice not to return home with us. So they literally changed his address from my address to this 29-year-old addict's address in their computer system. Even though they As, knew he was at risk, even though they knew he was missing. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. He did not want to leave. Or sorry, he didn't want to come home, so that was his choice. So what what were your what were your next steps? My next steps were I actually contacted Family and Children Services and they weren't going to take him on because I wasn't neglecting or abusing him. Right. I was still being a good parent. His dad was being a good parent. He was able to come home if he wanted to. So that was another fight in itself. And they finally took him on as society ward in, I believe it was October. So that was about a four-month fight to get them to finally agree. Wow. Yeah. So. It, it that is such a profound story that also echoes a part of my story. I actually, uh, so I lived in Toronto at the time, and uh, my son had been on a two year waiting list, um, at a variety of different places. Um, but his behavior in the home was starting to affect my other children. Um, and I called CAS because I was, my back was against the wall. And this is an epidemic in Canada where families are not access, getting access to help. Right. And so they're having to call children's aid or family and children's services, whatever it's called in their region to try to navigate 
the system because they don't have any services to help families. So in a case like yours, it's not an apprehension. Uh, you've got a parent who's trying to support their child who, but can't. Uh, back is against the wall. And so now you're trying to involve uh, an agency that is typically meant for children who are at risk in their homes um, and getting them involved. And in your case, they didn't even want to get involved. No, no. That's, uh, I, I can't imagine how frustrating that must have been for you, that you felt like everyone from the police to children's services were saying, too bad, he can just do whatever he wants. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. It was like every time I thought I could open a door, it was locked. It it would not open. It was so frustrating. And it's almost too like instilling a mindset in a young person who is obviously troubled that he also, you know, and again, because I'm not, I don't want to get into victim blaming because I see your son very much as a victim, obviously as well, but he needed help. And I've always had this, uh, frustration within the system that when we see somebody who is clearly in crisis and they're clearly not making choices that are good for them right that we are not and as as somebody who's a minor and I'm not talking a minor under 12 (laughs) that the mental health act uh likes to speak of but I'm talking somebody who is 18 years and younger who is in crisis who is not making good decisions and we're disempowering parents and then we are not and and to be honest, disempower me all you want if you're going to then help my child. It's interesting too because one of the um, other things that I hear a lot in society is is parent blaming and shaming and and not that I think that anybody in society needs to do that because when you're dealing with a child who's in crisis, you blame and shame yourself from morning to night. Uh, You lie awake sleepless nights thinking about every mistake you've made, uh, thinking about everything that you could have done different to have the outcome improve. Um, But, you know, then you start banging your head against all these red tape walls and you realize that your child is getting sucked into a vortex. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. And that not only is no one helping them, but they're actually empowering them to destroy their lives. Yep. it's mind-boggling. It is. And I've talked to a number of police officers, and not that they didn't want to help. They didn't have the tools to help them. Like, right. They have guidelines they have to follow. Uh, absolutely. Right? So there were so many that wanted to help, but they can't. Their hands were tied, too. And, and I don't know. It's just, like I said, it's that, it's that merry-go-round. It is it's, a merry-go-round. It's a cycle. Yeah, it is absolutely a cycle. And I think that's, you know, the advocacy that we are all doing as families who have children in crisis. And for moms like you and me, our our children are still alive today. And and and, and, you know, it sounds harsh, but the truth is, is that none of us know if that's going to be the truth next week. Exactly. Um, And for those that we've met who have lost children, you know, we are saying this is a toxic system that is not just incarcerating people, but is taking children and funneling them into this system and permitting them to refuse help. And it is bogging down the entire system within Canada. Yep. And it's happening on taxpayers' dollars. Yep. 
So I keep saying this is everyone's issue. It is our issue as mothers for our children, and it's not going to be as painful or meaningful to other people. But the truth is, is we're all funding this system. Exactly. Right? So I am going to close for now saying thank you so much for sharing your story and being so brave and making me feel less alone today. Um, It's really special that we got to connect today and that you got to share your story, which is so similar to mine. Um, today on my son's 20th birthday um, and to hold space for ourselves and hopefully other people who hear this story. Um, In closing, uh, as I have uh, other podcasts, I'm going to do one podcast a week for now. Um, I'm going to be interviewing Jessica Robinson this week uh, and she's going to be telling me a bit Uh, hopefully more than a bit about her story Uh, we're going to talk about the gaps in mental and emotional health and early intervention Uh, we're going to talk about uh, systemic problems within the adult system Um, and if you are somebody who's listening to this podcast and you would like a chance to tell your story uh, please do message me I am going to uh, leave my contact information uh, in the comments under this podcast Um, and I just thank everyone for listening and, uh, this is a really big social issue that is impacting society. Uh, we have to be deeply concerned about healing the most vulnerable among us because when we don't help people heal and we don't provide them the tools to heal, everyone suffers, not just the individual, uh, the whole system, the whole society suffers. And I think the other piece is that I just want to leave off is that this is a really uh, socioeconomic issue because if you speak to um, families who have resources, not always can they access the help they need, but more often they can. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it can make a big difference in the impact on a human being's lives and on a human's, human being's life. And the truth of the matter is, is what I'm really advocating for, if you really want to get it down to one final point, I am looking for a system holistically from the education system to the criminal justice system to the mental health system that is trauma informed um, and that the whole system operates from that place so that we can have fewer problems to solve and more people can have happier, peaceful lives uh, and the chance to thrive. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you again. Well, thank you. Appreciate it.